Hey everybody, it's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And this is Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite species of animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we do a lot of research and we try our best to make sure we're presenting information from trustworthy sources. And you know what? I have a quick little something something, a little treat from our email inbox to read you before we get started with this week's episode. Okay. This is sort of a follow-up, but to an episode from a really long time ago. Okay. So this was an email from Emma Lodge that says... Hi, Christian and Ellen. I recently started listening to your podcast from episode one Mm. onwards. (laughs) Anybody who has listened to from episode one, I commend you so much for sticking through those first hundred episodes or so where we're really finding our footing and figuring out how to podcast. If I could give you something like a Steam achievement, I would. Yeah, for sure. There should be a completionist sort of a (laughs) little badge that you get for listening to all of those. So Emma says, "Uh, firstly, I just want to tell you that I absolutely love it and enjoy listening while I'm commuting or working. You both have very soothing voices. Thank you so much. I'm a little self-conscious about my voice, so I'm always happy to hear that some people like it. I like it. You like my voice or your voice? Yours. Thank you. I I should hope so. You have to hear it a lot more than our listeners do. Emma says, my main reason for contacting you is to thank you for settling a discussion my husband's family have been having for years. My mother-in-law has always been convinced that there was a British TV ad in the 1990s that used the phrase orange rombagooty. She was certain it was a claymation-style short ad with different animals discussing something. We searched high and low for this orange rombagooty and have never found anything it could even remotely be. My husband and his brothers and dad have teased her about this endlessly, and she's been pretty much told that she was making it up. Imagine my surprise today while listening to episode 47 of your show with guest Tyus Williams, which, by the way, that was our episode on tigers, Mm -hmm. uh, when he mentioned something called an agouti. A-G-O-U-T-I. I'd never heard of these before, but some context and quick Googling told me that they're a rodent similar to a guinea pig. And another name for the Brazilian agouti is the orange rumped agouti. I shared this with my mother-in-law and she managed to find a description of the TV ad she'd been picked on for years. It's actually an ad for the London Zoo, which had an orange rumped agouti as an exhibit at the time. I see. And Emma included a link to the video. I definitely think it sounds more like orange rombagooty than anything else. (laughs) So thanks so much for your educational and enlightening show. My mother-in-law and I are grateful for your knowledge. How did that come up in the episode on Tigers? I have no idea how that came up in an episode. I would have to go back and listen to it. That was like two years ago that I did that episode. But that I do think that the orange rombagooty would make an excellent cryptid lore, like deep just the zoo of us lore Mm. sort of creature. So that's a that's a prompt for the artists out there is to draw what you think an orange rombagooty looks like. So I thought that was just so sweet. I am this whole like mishearing the name of an animal and then being convinced that it exists for decades, but being gaslit by your family into thinking it doesn't, I think is uh, is very relatable. Definitely seems like a conversation my family would have been having on and off over decades. So very sweet. I'm very glad that we could uh, bring closure to their family. We did this. it. We solved the case. Case closed. 
This is now a true crime investigative no, podcast. No, it's not. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought that was so sweet. I really enjoyed that email and I wanted to share it with folks. I asked Emma if it was okay for me to, to read that and they said yes. Oh, I should also say we're not having an episode next week. We're off next week. Yes. Christian and I are taking our kids to California, to Monterey Bay. We're going to see the aquarium. We're going to go see the pinnacles. We're going to have a lot of fun. Hopefully see some seals. Big plans. So since we will be traveling with the kids, we're going to be way too busy to make an episode next week. So that's our little summer vacation. Yeah. We'll miss y'all, but we'll be back soon. That's all I really wanted to touch on. I think it's my turn to go first this week. It is. And this week, I am bringing you a highly requested reptile. And also, this is my first time doing a snake on this show. Really? Yeah, we've done lots of snakes, but they've all been by you. Oh, I've been <laughs> hogging all the snakes. Well, you're kind of the snake guy. You're like into snakes. So like, it makes sense. I made sense. a pun there unintentionally. Oh, hogging all. Oh, <laughs> I get it. Oh, nice one. That was a good one. That was subtle. Uh, this is the North American hognose snake. Yay. I should say these are North American hognose snakes because there are multiple species of hognose snakes. Okay. And specifically the North American ones. Uh. They belong to a genus called Heterodon. Hognose snakes were submitted by Lauren Rodino and Heather Robinson. So thanks both of you for suggesting this. Yeah. I'm getting my information from the Florida Museum, the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. An article called Natural History of the Western Hognose Snake Heterodon Nosicus with notes on envenomation by Roy Averill Murray, who is with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And that was published in Sonoran Herpetologist in September of 2006. Okay. And of course, Animal Diversity Web. Mm. What would we do without you, Animal Diversity <laughs> Web? Thank you so much. If you're unfamiliar with hognose snakes, they're not massive snakes. The biggest ones, the absolute like max length ever recorded for a for a North American hognose snake was around 46 inches long, which is 1.2 meters or just under four feet. Mm -hmm. But most of them are a lot smaller than that. Most of them only reach around two feet long at and, adulthood. And these are not thick snakes either. They are kind of. They're are they? a little chunky. They're not oh, okay. like... They're not like a Gaboon Viper thick. You know, they're not like pancaking on the ground. Ball python thick? Eh, maybe. They, what I'm thinking of to me is the fact that they're very tubish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they don't have a lot of like definition to like their neck or anything. Oh, okay. But females do tend to be much larger than the males. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So girl boss. Good for her. Uh, there are five species in this genus that are found throughout North America, including the eastern, dusty, plains, Mexican, and southern hognose snakes. Oh, okay, those are all separate. I thought this was one very long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've never heard of the the eastern, dusty, plains, Mexican, southern hognose snake? That is something they would do, it though. Would, yeah. <laughs> something some goofy board taxonomist would do. So it, where we live in Florida, we are within the range of both the eastern and and the southern hognose snakes. So we could find either where we live. Good. So there are also hognose snake genuses that share the distinctive trait of the hognose snake, which is the pointy nose. That's like it comes to a sharp little tip in the front and it's kind of upturned. Right. But they're completely unrelated, like have nothing to do with each other. Okay. The heterodon genus is only in North America, but then there's also different genuses of hognose snakes that belong to completely different families mm. that are in South America and Madagascar. 
and they have no relation to each other at all. So this suggests a convergent evolution of this trait, which is really interesting because it is such an exaggerated feature. Mm -hmm. Like it's very, very distinct. And it just happened coincidentally across the snake kingdom multiple times. Which we love to see. Yeah, it's great. It it shows you that it's a great tool to have. Mm -hmm. That if like multiple different families were like, yeah, I love that. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's a good segue into our first category that we rate animals on, which is effectiveness. So for us, this is physical adaptations, things built into the animal's body. Let it do its things. Mm-hmm. Let it do its jobs. Um, I'm giving North American hognose snakes an 8 out of 10 for effectiveness. That's pretty good. Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, just where they get their name. The hognose snake is because their nose is tilted upwards like a little snooty piggy nose Mm -hmm. Uh, and then at the tip of the snout is actually a scale it is called the rostral scale so if you've ever heard the word rostrum that usually means like something on something's nose or something like that Mm -hmm. so the rostral scale is just like this single hard scale on the front of their nose that's tilted upwards and what this is for is that hognose snakes are burrowers and they burrow into soil and sand um they spend a lot of their time underground so that pointy nose acts like a spade mm-hmm. so it like breaks up the ground in front of them and lets them shove through sand or dirt so this is great for breaking up the ground in front of them kind of serves the same purpose as claws right and like moles and stuff like that right as close as you can get without having arms that's true. They had to, they, they didn't really have any other limbs that they could attach that uh, mm. tool to, so they just stuck it right on their nose. <laughs> Another interesting thing about hognose snakes is that they're called rear-fanged. Oh. I, don't, I don't know if we've ever talked about a rear-fanged snake on the show, but have you heard the term rear-fanged? I have, yeah. So a lot of times when you see depictions of snakes, like in illustrations or something like that, the distinctive shape of a snake's open mouth is of two long pointy fangs in the front. Yeah. But not all snakes have fangs in the front like that. These snakes are rear fanged. So instead of having those long pointy teeth in the front, they have this sort of like ridge of fangs in the back of their jaw. Mm -hmm. Um, They're grooved. So they kind of look like a series of sharp pointy teeth and they point backwards, like towards the snake's throat. So this is really cool because this allows the prey to like easily slide down the mouth towards the throat, but then it catches, so they can't come back up. Mm. So if you've got something that's squirming around, so most of what these snakes eat are toads. So if they've got a toad that's like squirming around trying to get out of their mouth, it's really difficult for them to come back up the throat because of those fangs that point backwards, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, pretty cool it helps them have like a really strong grip on their toads yeah there's this kind of thing that i see floating around this little factoid about them that i see that says that the fangs are for popping the toads (laughs) because sometimes toads defensively inflate themselves like a balloon sure (laughs) that the fangs are for popping them and deflating them (laughs) but i did also like the the article that i mentioned suggested that their fangs aren't long enough to puncture through the skin of the toad fully to like let the air out sure so take that with a grain of salt but it is something i saw a lot Mm -hmm. like i saw that repeated Mm -hmm. in a lot of places um not 100 percent sure if that's really completely true but it is kind of neat 
to do with their fangs, they also do actually have venom. They're usually described as being non-venomous because the amount of venom that they produce is negligible towards humans. It doesn't even kill their prey. It's more meant to subdue their prey. So it kind of like paralyzes them uh, so that they can eat them easier. But it doesn't even kill toads. So like if it's not going to kill a toad, it's certainly not going to harm a human. We appreciate restraint. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's really just a very mild venom, but not none. Yeah. Not none. Yeah. Just a smidge, a hint. You certainly, as a human being, don't need to worry about it. Sometimes people may have an allergic reaction to the venom, but even that is usually not incredibly serious. The article that I mentioned did include what they described as notes on envenomation, by which they mean the author was envenomated by one and <laughs> and described it. Might and as well. yeah, I mean, th- for science, right? <laughs> like, if you're already being bit by a snake, you like might as well get content out of this. <laughs> it was like a handwritten journal. You can tell he's writing it with his offhand. <laughs> like the handwriting slowly gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did describe, you know, pain, swelling irritation stuff like that but then it faded and went away and it wasn't debilitating and he didn't need to go to a hospital and even then that is like really it's difficult to get envenomated by these snakes because like i mentioned their fangs are in the back of their mouth so they have to really chomp down to get anything all the way in the back where they can get their venom through I mean, this was a person who was studying them, so he was, like, handling it and sure. moving it around. This was a captive snake. So he was, like, moving it around, and it chomped down real hard on it. <laughs> so you'll see them described as non-venomous because, like, medically, it's not a medically significant venom. It's not anything humans need to worry about. I just want to make it clear that they, it's not that they have no venom whatsoever. It's that you don't need to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Now, here's something cool. I mentioned that they eat mostly toads. Yeah. The toads and frogs that make up most of their diet are poisonous. Their skin secretes this type of poison called bufotoxins. Mm -hmm. But hognose snakes have enlarged adrenal glands. So adrenal glands are these glands in your body that produce hormones like adrenaline. Adrenaline Mm. is a big one. Um, That's what the gland is kind of like they share a name. Uh, That's not all they produce. They produce other hormones. So a lot of the hormones that this gland produces actually help neutralize the bufotoxins so that they can digest it. So this enlarged adrenal gland helps them be resistant to the poison of the toads that they eat, which is a great idea. Yeah, for sure. So the next category that we rate animals on is ingenuity. These are behavioral adaptations, things the animal is doing with their body to give them an advantage of some sort of solve problems that they face. I'm giving the hognose snake a 7 out of 10, which sounds like a pretty like standard middle-of-the-road score for mm-hmm. us. And a word that I usually see used to describe these snakes is derpy. That's sort of what I see tossed around the most. Okay. They don't have reputations for being particularly bright. They're incredibly docile. You have to really agitate them to get them to strike. But I feel like they they get that the fangs and the venom are not their strengths, right? They understand the bite isn't going to do it. The bite isn't going to protect them. So they defend themselves with the old razzle dazzle. (laughs) (laughs) They put on the most incredible show. So if something is really scaring them or they feel threatened, first they flatten their body. Mm -hmm. So similar to a cobra, right? When you see a cobra flare out their hood, it's a similar thing where they flatten their body. So this makes a lot of people see them and think they're cobras because they do that same behavior. 
they can also inflate their body, like puff themselves up with air to make themselves look bigger and scarier. They also hiss. So they're making a scary sound. They're just really acting tough. Mm-hmm. Um, this behavior actually has given them what could be considered a misnomer, which is puff adder. Oh. So if you've ever heard someone say they saw a puff adder in North America, this is what they're talking about. Isn't that something else? Yes, it is. That okay. is also the name for a species of very venomous right. viper that's found in Africa. Right. Um, so maybe don't like use that name for the one that's in North America because that could give people the wrong idea. Mm-hmm. The African puff adder is extremely venomous. This one is not. You don't need to worry about that one. But another nickname they have is the spreading adder. You ever heard okay. of spreading adder? Um, that's what some people call them because of that. They spread their body out to look bigger. Right. So if that doesn't work, <laughs> <laughs> they have some other stuff that they do. If the threat is persisting, the hognose snake, they throw their entire body and soul into the most Oscar-worthy performance you've ever seen <laughs> of a fake death. So we've talked about fake deaths before with the opossum. The opossum just kind of, that's it. The hognose snake is absolutely spotlight on them stealing the show. They make an entire production of it. They throw their head back. They open their mouth and let their tongue flop out. They writhe around on the ground and like twist and wiggle their body around. Like they're like convulsing. Like you can just hear them like, oh, completely like spinning violently throwing their head back and everything and then eventually they just dramatically die they go completely belly up and flop their tongue back and they're just like they're um thespians Mm -hmm. yeah they are It is a sight. It is so funny to watch if you know what they're doing, right? If you don't know what they're doing and you think they're in legitimate medical distress, then yes, you would be like, oh my gosh, call a vet immediately. But (laughs) uh, gosh, if you know that they're bluffing, it is hilarious. Mm -hmm. They will even sometimes, they can like control their blood vessels such that they can like bleed from their mouth. Oh, don't like that. They can, like, bleed from their mouth. Sometimes they'll poop themselves Uh and then, like, roll around in it. So they're, like, coating themselves in poop to make themselves really unappetizing. Committed. Yes. They go completely 100% all in on this bit that Mm -hmm. they're doing. So I think the funniest part about all this is so that they do all this, they end up belly up, dramatically dead on the floor. If you try to flip them over after they've done all this, they immediately write themselves where they they put themselves back (laughs) belly up. Like they're so committed to maintaining this illusion of this like death pose that they forget that they're supposed to also be still. Right. So if you try to flip them over back onto their belly, they immediately, they're like, no, 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 like this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm dead. <laughs> it was, it's, it's so funny. They're like, no, let me show you how I'm dead. <laughs> so just for the drama and the flair, I feel like that makes up for maybe their derpiness in other areas. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think so. Because you just... They have such a passion for drama, and I have to respect that. I think I'm going to try this next time a solicitor knocks on our door. (laughs) Next time someone comes to our door that I don't want at our door, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try just like writhing on the floor and flopping my head back and just, oh, no. But do it in a way that it seems the too good to be true offer caused it. 
Oh, like, oh, these deals, oh, these savings, (laughs) my heart can't take it. (laughs) If I don't get these solar panels immediately, I'm going to pass out. (laughs) Thinking about the death display from the hognose snake, the blood shooting from the eyeballs of the horned lizard, and then also the the neck frills of the frilled lizard. I love that these desert reptiles, their entire threat response system is to be as startlingly weird as possible. (laughs) Just quick, be as weird as you can, and just do something incredibly unhinged and out of left field. And then their hope is to like escape while you're just trying to parse what just happened. Oh, yeah. You're sitting there reeling from like, what did I just witness? And then they're like, bye. It's plan A, intimidate. Mm -hmm. Plan B, performance. (laughs) (laughs) And it, you know, it seems to work pretty well. I mean, if you're going to eat something and then suddenly it's like writhing on the ground, the idea is that a lot of predators don't want to eat something that has died of like a disease or a parasite or something. So I think what they're trying to do is mimic some sort of medical distress that makes them think, oh, I don't want what he's having. Right. So they're like, whatever's going on with you, I don't want it in my body. I'm not going to eat it. Hmm. So I think that's what they're going for. Makes sense. It seems to work pretty well because that's kind of the only tool in their kit. Other than, of course, they're good at camouflaging. They spend a lot of time burrowing in the ground. So like all of that sort of makes them pretty good at evading predators, even though they're not particularly combat ready. You know, this is not the kind of snake that's going to be like taking down a massive predator or something like that. But, you know, they I think they've got good behavioral adaptations. Good on them. Yeah. Finally, aesthetics for the hognose snake. I'm going to give them a 9 out of 10. They're cute. They're just cute as can be. I think so, too. Yeah, they have this little pouty face. Like, if you look at them from dead on, they have sort of angry looking eyes. And then this mad and little. (laughs) And they they have good camouflage. So the coloration ranges a lot by Mm. where they live. So the ones that you'd find here where we live would probably be way darker in color. They'd be like in a more of a dark brown, black splotch sort of thing but out west you might see some that are more like the sandy beige color even like yellows and and much lighter colors because they're more in like these dry sands and stuff but they're all cute they're just cute as can be i think it's a good gateway snake i think like if you're not cool with snakes or you're made uneasy by snakes this is a good one to like get you in you know what I mean? Yeah. Between them or, you know, the puppy dog pythons. but Yeah. They're also, they have that like docile sort of demeanor mm-hmm. where like when they're not puffing themselves up at you and stuff, like they really, it's tough to get them to bite. Yeah. But just to clarify for everyone, unlikely to bite does not mean will not bite. <laughs> right. They still very much can. They yes. have a mouth full of teeth. So yes, they can. That being said, you know, these are... I wouldn't say them a terribly common pet, but they are out there in the pet trade. It's not a rare pet, but from what I've heard, they are not necessarily a beginner snake, but they're also not horribly difficult. Yeah. And I would argue most, if not all snakes are not good beginner pets at all. No. <laughs> this is probably a good opportunity to say we have had a hognose snake in our home. That's um, true. We have never had a pet hognose snake, but my friend does have a pet hognose snake. He's a little guy. His name is Simone. He's so cute. We pet sat for Simone one time we while did. my friend was out of town for a little while. So Simone came and stayed at our house. We had his little tank with a little, like a 
heating pad underneath so he could be nice and toasty. We fed him while he was here and he did eat, which was cool. He was a delight. I got to hold him just in that one time when we were getting his tank like set up and stuff. So I did actually get to hold him and I found the way he moved to be really fascinating. So very cool little guy. We watched him burrow into the sand and he was neat to watch. I asked my friend if they have any cool stories about Simone and they mentioned that he is a climber. He loves climbing. Yeah, on stuff in I remember tank. having to put heavy textbooks on the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we had to weigh down the top of the tank so that he wouldn't push <laughs> his way out because he like he, he's not big. Right. You know, he's a little guy, but uh, we did have to weigh down the top of the tank so he wouldn't shove his way out i think it's always cool to cover an animal that we've actually met yeah in person for sure uh to wrap things up for the hognose snake their conservation status like i mentioned there's five different species and most of them are of least concern but the southern hognose snake which is heterodon simus is listed as vulnerable on the iucn red list with populations decreasing so Southern hognose snakes thrive in a very particular type of forest that is dominated by a type of tree called a longleaf pine. Mm. Have you ever heard of a longleaf pine? I think so. We have been in longleaf pine forests. They have a very sort of iconic, what I think of as like a Florida forest look. Mm. Longleaf pines are extremely tall. They're straight as an arrow. They're not very big around. And then all of the leaves are like really close to the top of the tree. Right. So you'll have these forests where it's mostly just tree trunks and all of the leaves are like way up at the top that are like 50 feet not 50 that's probably an exaggeration but they're like 30 feet up or something and then the underbrush of this forest will be covered in like long grasses palmettos like this sort of dense underbrush with not a lot in the middle of the forest but what's important for the snakes is that these longleaf pine forests often have a really loose substrate. So the soil, if you imagine walking through one of these forests, it's usually really sandy. Yeah. It's very loose. (laughs) Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's going to be a sandy walk. The, The soil tends to be loose, which is perfect for these snakes, which burrow. Mm hmm So awesome environment for these snakes to live in that's why they really thrive in longleaf pine forests also all that underbrush is great for hiding them from predators like birds and stuff so a great place for them to live so some of the largest swaths of longleaf pine forest in our area are in pumpkin hill creek preserve and also goldhead branch state park you know where that is Mm, i've been there actually you've been there okay good also if you drive down i'm sorry this is going to get extremely regionally specific but uh if you drive down blanding down 21 into keystone heights and stark yep lots of longleaf pine forests down there so we've driven through these many many times you've been there Mm -hmm. we're definitely familiar with longleaf pine forests now the thing about longleaf pine forests is that the vast majority of them were overexploited and cleared within the last like 200 years so the trees were cut down for their lumber but then the land was either converted into agricultural fields or replanted with different species of pine Mm. that grew faster but they were more used for lumber and stuff so they weren't being replenished So the forests were being cleared away and then not regrown. A key part of that is that a very important part of the longleaf pine trees life cycle 
is wildfire. Mm. They need fire to regrow because when they first grow, the tree, when it's like a baby tree, basically, when it's just a little baby, it's like a long, grassy sort of shrub. And if there's a lot of stuff growing over it, it can't get the light that it needs to mature into a tree and grow through the underbrush. Hmm. So when there's a wildfire that sweeps through the area, it clears away all that old growth, gets rid of a lot of that vegetation that lets things underneath grow through. So without those wildfires, the mid-story becomes overgrown, chokes out the trees, and the trees can't grow. Hmm. So fire suppression right? People not letting wildfires naturally occur in this area meant that the the forests weren't growing back at all. So now where we're at now is that, what is it? Over 90% of longleaf pine forests are gone. Mm. So yeah, maintenance of the forest, including like understanding fire ecology is really important to like restoring these longleaf pine forests. If you want to know more about that, there is a cool organization that's doing a lot of work with this. They're called the Longleaf Alliance. Oh. Yeah. So you can find more about them at longleafalliance.org. I'll include a link. So if you're interested in how you can help the hognose snake, if their sweet little adorable nose and their incredible performance has moved your heart, there are a couple ways you can help them. You can educate yourself and others on snakes, um, their importance in the ecosystem and snake diversity, because a lot of people see a snake and kill it immediately because they don't know what it is. They're afraid of it. They're afraid it's going to hurt them or their pets or their family, and they just kill it right off the bat. So educating yourself and the people around you about like, hey, a lot of these snakes are not a threat at all to you. They're fine. You can let them be. That's a big help, right? Mm -hmm. If you're preventing these snakes from being actively killed. Um, You can also support conservation and restoration efforts like the Longleaf Alliance. So definitely um, develop a healthy relationship with your local snakes. Yep. I always tell people... You know, the majority of venomous snake bites on humans occur when said human is trying to kill the venomous snake. <laughs> yes, especially with this one, the hognose snake, because yeah. they are so reluctant to bite. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say there was like no recorded bites ever that weren't from a human handling them. Right. Like the human is always the aggressor in the situation. Not maybe They might be trying to handle them or relocate them or doing whatever they're doing, but to the snake, the human is the aggressor. Right. So this snake will certainly not bite you unless you are doing something to <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, because, you know, we're just an extremely large predator to yes. them. So they're pulling out all the stops, basically. They're like, all right, well, might as well try something. Try right. what you've got. So, so yeah, leave snakes alone. Tell everybody around you to leave snakes alone. And uh, that is the hognose snake. Thanks, hon. Thank you. Let's take a quick second to hear from our friends on the MaxFun Network, and then we'll get to your animal. Hi, my name is Graham Clark, and I'm one half of the podcast Stop Podcasting Yourself, a show that we've recorded for many, many years. And uh, at the moment, instead of being in person, we're recording remotely, and uh, you wouldn't even notice. You don't even notice the lag. That's right, Graham. And uh, the great thing about this. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Okay, go ahead. And you can listen to us uh, every week on MaximumFun.org. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Your podcasts. Hi, it's me, Dave Hill from before here to tell you about my brand new show on maximum fun the dave hill good time hour which combines my old maximum fun show dave hill's podcasting incident with my old radio show the 
goddamn Dave Hill show into one new futuristic program from the future. If you like delightful conversation with incredible guests, technical difficulties, and actual phone calls from real-life listeners, you've just hit a street called easy. I'm also joined by my incredible co-host, the boy criminal Chris Gersbeck. Say hi, Chris. Hey, Dave. It's really great to... That's enough, Chris. And New Jersey chicken rancher, Des. Say hi, Des. Hey, Dave. The Dave Hill Good Time Hour. Brand new episodes every Friday on Maximum Fun. Plus, the show's not even an hour. It's 90 minutes. Take that, stupid rules. We nailed it. Let's hear it, babe. What is your animal this week? This week, I'm bringing cone snails. I'm excited about this. (laughs) I think... Cone snail doesn't sound that interesting, but trust the process. It is good. Very interesting. I promise. So much like the hognose snake, cone snail refers to very many species. Hundreds, in fact. Good. So we're talking about a taxonomic family called the conidae. So lots of different species there. I'm not focusing on a particular one. When you get into marine invertebrates, there's always so many of those. There's a lot. Uh, And I'll be getting information from... The Aquarium of the Pacific's website found at aquariumofpacific.org. Excellent. So, like I mentioned, lots of different species. So there's a bit of a range in terms of how big they are. They can range from 1.3 centimeters to 21.6 centimeters or half an inch to eight and a half inches long. (gasps) That's big. Yeah, they can get pretty big. It's like bigger than my hand. (laughs) Um, And these are marine snails. So they are found in salt water. No rivers, no streams. Right. There are freshwater snails. And I tried my best using theater of the mind to describe what the snail looks like. Oh, yeah. Let's hear it. <laughs> Paint me a word picture. Yeah. So when I think a lot of people, when you hear marine snail, you think of a conch. Yeah, sure. So big, spiky, spirally. It's not quite that. It's more cylindrical. doesn't have those jutting spikes. And if you think of it as a cylinder, one end is slightly smaller than the other. Tapered? Yeah. Would you describe the shape as perhaps... Like a cone? Yes, conical. (laughs) (laughs) Would you perhaps put ice cream into this No, not this one, I wouldn't. So yeah, that's to give you a general idea. And there's lots of variations in color. Now, where you'll find these is temperate to tropical oceans. So they're pretty much all over the place. You can find them in tidal zones. So like the parts of beaches between low and high tide, Mm. but also deeper down like in reefs. And sometimes they can wash up on beaches. Okay. That'll like, come back. Like alive washing up on beaches? I think so. I think they can be. That's not where they prefer to be. No. Wouldn't <laughs> like to be there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mentioned that one for a reason. I'll come back to it. Oh, okay. So we already mentioned this is the taxonomic family of Conidae. We like to talk about evolutionary relatives. Their order, Neogastropoda, mm. contains other sea snails, but that's not all of them. Not all sea snails are contained in one order. I cannot express to y'all how many <laughs> sea snails there are. So many. <laughs> right. Because uh, the step above this is like gastropods. <laughs> sure. Yeah. There's so many snails, you guys. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get right into our scoring. For effectiveness, I'm giving a full 10 out of 10. Ooh, that's so much. Yeah. This is a great snail. So their diet kind of differs based on the species, but there's generally three categories of diet with these kinds of snails. There's ones that feed on worms. Okay. That's a normal thing for snails to eat, I think. Yes. There's ones that feed on other gastropods, like mollusks and other snails. And there's one that feeds on fish. How do they do that? (laughs) That seems like a mismatched pairing. (laughs) Right. Because when you think of snail, you think of slow. And fish being 
Uh, well, also <laughs> snails being affixed to a surface and fish having the entirety of the ocean at their disposal. They're right. moving in a full three-dimensional range. Yep. <laughs> so it's the larger of these cone snails that go after fish, and they all have the same tool, and that is a venom dart. A dart. Yes. Okay. So, explain this dart. Yep. Yeah, and I want to make sure I explain this well, because a cursory reading, you might think this is a projectile weapon of some sort, where it's like throwing a dart across some distance. Sure. <laughs> that is they've, not... got, they've got like a ranged yeah, attack. That's not the case. Think of it more of a harpoon. Mm, or, like a spear, maybe. Yeah. Or even um, spear fishing, uh, where oh, it, it sure. fi- like fires in like a, a harpoon or an arrow that's connected to a string. Ah, you're like, I am going to need that back, though. (laughs) Yes, correct. So this venom dart is actually the fastest attack in the animal kingdom. Really? And it lasts milliseconds. So let me describe the attack, and then I'll get into into anatomy. So these are snails that are, like, you know, sitting on sand and rocks and such. Uh, They're often found in reefs because that's where a lot of animals will hide, Instead of being out in the open water. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the cone snail, that is a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, it moves very slowly. It can also be kind of partially buried in the sand. Well, being slow is what you associate a snail with, right? right? A snail, I feel like, is the go-to animal used to illustrate slowness. In the world of snails, though, their movement is pretty fast. Okay. In terms of, like, getting from point A to point B. Locomotion. (laughs) Yes, locomotion is quick. So they'll, they'll sneak up on a fish... And they have a couple of parts here that are that are exposed outside of the shell. So one is the foot, right, mm-hmm. what they use to move around. But they also have eye stalks and a siphon. So the siphon is what they use to move water from outside the shell into their shell. And they also have what's called a rostrum. Which, oh, okay. Yeah. We just said that word. <laughs> yes. So that looks like another kind of siphon. But within that rostrum is a – let me make sure I'm using the right word here – a proboscis. Okay. Yes. Like how like a butterfly has so a proboscis. It's, it's like a tube inside a larger tube. <laughs> okay. It's the alien, yeah, yeah, yeah. how it has the tiny mouth inside of the bigger mouth. Now, this proboscis, the smaller of the two tubes, has chemoreceptors at the end of it. So mm. it's smelling. Okay. That's the sniffer. Yeah. That's the sniffing tube. So it uses that proboscis to find a fish it also has like a feeling sense to it as well. Okay. And when it senses it's up against the soft tissue of a fish, that proboscis fires the barbed hook or I guess the, the venom dart into the fish. Okay. So what that is, it's a modified tooth or a radula. I remember talking about radulas when I talked about the giant African land snail. Yes. So these are what snails use to grind down the things they're eating. It's like a sandpapery sort of... Sandpapery mm-hmm. isn't the right word. It's like halfway between a tongue and, a, and teeth. Right. It's like a tongue covered in teeth. Sure. But what this is, think of it as a barbed hypodermic needle that is connected via a string to the inside of the snail. And that needle is hollow and has like a hollow compartment inside it that is filled with a venom. This is so like spy movie, <laughs> tranquilizer dart sort of. Yeah, like pew. Yeah, ah, yeah. Funk. <laughs> like they, the the fish like falls on the floor, and you can see the needle sticking yeah. out directly out their neck. Yeah. So it's fast. It lodges itself into the fish, delivering that venom. And this is a venom of neurotoxin, mm. so it's intended to quickly paralyze the fish. Watching videos of this, the fish will you know react 
violently at first, but it quickly settles down. (laughs) Not by choice, I'm assuming. And keep in mind, this barb is still connected to the snail via a string, basically. So it's holding on like a buck and bronco. Mm -hmm. So this is really quick. Fish stops moving really quickly. And then that proboscis using that string pulls the fish into the rostrum when that rostrum can get bigger. Oh, to Ew. just swallow the fish hole, basically. Gross. Yes. <laughs> Kirby style. Think of it that way. <laughs> it's if Kirby was armed yeah. with a gun. <laughs> Wait, doesn't Kirby have a gun in the new game? I have no idea. I'm pretty sure Kirby has a gun in the new game. Swallow a gun and become a gun? I don't know. So it swallows the fish hole and digests it. Love um, it. So that tooth basically is done for after that because it gets spit out with the rest of the undigestible parts of whatever it's eating. Sure. This is like a disposable dart, basically. Okay. (laughs) As a collection. One and done. (laughs) So, yeah, that's the venom dart. Fascinating. Yep. Uh, The venom is chemically very complicated and varies greatly from species to species and even with individuals of the same species in the same area. Really? (laughs) Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Have you ever heard this thing that's been going around on the internet for years about the snail who's constantly chasing you oh and if yeah. it touches you you'll die yeah but it goes at the speed of a normal snail right 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 have you heard about that yeah i have that's kind of what this reminds me of because <laughs> you said that it like sneaks up on fish and then the second it feels that it's made contact with the fish it immediately like punches yeah. it and kills it yep yep that's this in real life <laughs> that snail is real <laughs> Yep, basically. So like I mentioned, it's basically a neurotoxin that's meant to paralyze. The more potent species of this family can kill humans. Oh, okay. Yes, and these are mostly the ones that go after fish. Oh, nowhere is safe. (laughs) You see a little snail on the ground, you're like, surely the snail cannot kill me. Right. Um, So it uses this dart and venom for hunting, but will also use it as self-defense. So envenomation in humans is often because they are stepped on or handled. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. This doesn't make me feel great about going in the ocean. (laughs) Yeah. And then it doesn't help that they look pretty cool, too. (laughs) (laughs) Does it look very enticing? Yeah. It looks very much like, oh, I should pick this up and take this home. Right would not do it no uh so yeah it has that toxin and it like i mentioned they're slow moving compared to other animals but in the world of snails they're pretty fast sure they do have sight i mentioned they have two eyes one on each eye stalk but they're not super great there are other snails with more developed eyes than theirs mm, sure. um, they primarily rely on this this sense of smell and touch with that proboscis okay seems like they've kind of specked into other stuff mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. That venom has medical properties that oh are being gosh. studied. Does it, it really? It can be used as a, a pain management solution. Because some of the types of venom are like 10 times stronger than morphine, for example. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So a couple of videos I came across was uh, <laughs> harvesting of the venom. Oh. Yeah. That sounds brutal. It's basically, they have a tube, like a test tube with like a clear wrap at the end. Kind of the setup you would see with rattlesnakes. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. But what they do is they, they hold a fish with pincers in front of that film on the tube to get mm. the, the snail to shoot its barb. Its bait. Yeah. It's, Interesting. You're basically trying to get it to shoot the barb into that tube film. And then the the little bit of venom that's in there is collected on the other side of that film. I would not want to be the researcher doing that <laughs> collecting. Yeah. I, that could not be me. And then they have to clip off the, the, the barb. 
does this kill the snail? No. Okay. It does Phew. not. Okay. Because remember, remember, I mentioned it's disposable. So um, I'm not sure if they have like a collection ready to go or if they just grow it back. But it, it will have another at some point. Sure. I would imagine it would be something that they would have to grow mm-hmm. like over time. You would, they wouldn't just have like a little yeah. arsenal of. <laughs> it's not super big. It's it's teeny tiny. Sure. So yeah, those those are the videos I saw. I had to watch videos of this to fully understand what was going on. Right. So I encourage others to look up videos of this. For I was sure. really hoping to find like a super high definition, like slow mo version of it. I wasn't able to find one. It's probably difficult to get footage of. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I remember seeing something about this snail on the most extreme on on Animal Planet when I was a kid. (laughs) And I think it contributed greatly to my fear of the ocean. Oh, yeah. Just this idea that like even an innocent looking snail could just murk you immediately, like out of (laughs) nowhere, just 360 no scope you. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah, that wraps up effectiveness for sure i couldn't find anything to take points off of there what more do you need (laughs) this thing's invincible yeah and i didn't mention it but of course snail shell defense it's a it's a little tank with a sniper in it yeah yeah yeah. wild ingenuity wise i also giving a seven out of ten for ingenuity so one because this method of hunting requires stealth hunting that's true yeah I was thinking if you're a snail and you are traveling very, very slowly, there are some animals who travel slowly cryptically. Hmm. It's like part of their hiding strategy, basically, Hmm. where you can move so imperceptibly slowly that your prey doesn't notice you sneaking up on them. Right, right. So I would imagine in that case, being slow probably actually helps them a little bit. Yeah. They are mostly active at night or like the dusk and dawn times. Of course, they are traveling under the (laughs) cover of darkness. Uh, I think during the daytime, you might find them buried with only their siphon above the sand, like Mm. to get to move water to to its gills, basically. It's opposite snorkeling. Yeah. (laughs) Aesthetics, I'm giving a nine out of 10. I think they're pretty. Like, like, are you talking about the shell? or The, the shell, ha- yeah. So especially my favorite one I came across is called the textile cone mm. snail, uh, which can be found uh, in Australia in the like Indo-Pacific region. Okay. Very dangerous, though. Yeah, don't touch. <laughs> my only point off for the aesthetics was it's a little bit too pleasing to the human eye. It is enticing. Yeah. Again, not much of a conservation status because we're talking about hundreds of different species. Right. But they're prone to over-harvesting, uh, both for you know people that admire their shells and also scientific research. Oh, sure. Yeah, because if, if their venom is needed for like medical research, mm-hmm. then is there any sort of like captive breeding program for them? Not that I came across, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, one little fun thing I want to talk about. Uh, okay. Jewelry. Love it. Puka shells. <gasps> <laughs> this is a blast from the past. <laughs> Uh, so fashion from the 1990s, I, yes. I believe, had made a resurgence in recent years. Puka shells for me feel so distinctly 2001, 2002. Oh, but yeah. I, that is, of course, the time when I was a kid. So I like, associate them with the boy band area. Yes, definitely. For sure. This is something you're going to see on your Justin Timberlake. Mm-hmm. Your, uh, frosted tips. Yes. All that jazz. Absolutely. Yeah. So I didn't realize this until looking into this, but there's a couple different kind of shells that are thought of when you when you talk about puka shells. The kind I always think about are what I always thought looked like gnocchi. Yes, they do look like gnocchi. Yeah, they do. <laughs> the food. Mm-hmm. And those are uh, shells of calories. This I learned from Animal Crossing. Ah, 
So that is not the one I want to talk about, though. Okay. The more the one that's associated with the, like the Hawaiian puka shells, and, like, and real quick, the word puka in the Hawaiian language just means hole. Okay. Yeah. So it's like a shell with a hole in it. Yes. Okay. It's not like the name of a species. No. Okay. No. So the cone snail shells are often used for puka shell jewelry because the empty shell, as it gets worn down by the ocean, you you end up with that broader end of the cylinder, so to speak. Mm. And on that end, it slightly pokes out because of like the slight spiral in the shell. Sure. And that little top piece also gets worn down. So what you have is basically a naturally occurring coin shape with a hole in the center. It's like ready for stringing yeah. through a necklace exactly. or something. It's, yes. like, it's a bead ready to go. Yep. So that's where it came from is because they, they could be found like that naturally. Interesting. But of course, as popularity increased, you know, they could just take shells that have not been worn down naturally and do it themselves. Right. Like drill it. Like yeah. drill a hole in it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. I didn't think that the hole was naturally occurring. It can be. Yeah. And so the jewelry that, that uses like this, it's basically these coin-shaped shells that are stacked onto each other. Mm. Yeah. So that that's the kind of puka shell jewelry that uses cone snails shells. I see. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like I saw them starting to pop back up again. Like, I feel like I saw puka shells start to pop up in association with other late 90s, early 2000s, like, fashion trends. Like, right. as those are starting to cycle back around and become retro, mm-hmm. I wonder if we'll start seeing puka shells become popular again. Maybe. I feel like those and shark teeth were like oh, very yeah. popular for a while. <laughs> like puka shell and shark teeth jewelry was very like mm-hmm. surfer vibe. Yes. And then I guess my last little thing earlier, I mentioned conks. There are two ways to pronounce that. I've always heard conk with, yes. a, with K sound. That's a Florida thing, I think. Is it really? Yes. Huh. Um, I guess I've never discussed conks with anybody outside of Florida, so I wouldn't Well, know. I guess it's a Florida and uh, Caribbean thing. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. Uh, other parts of the United States will also pronounce it that way, but a lot of them will also pronounce them conch. Mm. So we'll, uh, like the British pronunciation of it. Okay. Interesting. So don't correct people if you hear people say it a different way. Both, it's just a different yep, pronunciation. Both are acceptable. I think uh, what led to a lot of confusion is a particular episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. Where the like, Magic Conch. Yes. All yeah. ha- well, they say conch. They do? They, yes. This is a Mandela effect. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely a, a Mandela effect thing yeah. because I definitely thought they said conch. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Maybe my brain auto-corrected. <laughs> <laughs> two acceptable pronunciations. They're talking about the same thing. Of course, there's other species. There's several species of conch. But, uh, yeah. Wow. I just actually the other day I found a fascinating, beautiful shell on the beach that was like the perfect spiral, mm-hmm. pristine, no chunks out of it or anything, just the perfect shell I found on the beach. Um, and I took a photo of it and I posted it in our Discord to ask around to see if anybody could ID what kind of snail this shell came from. Mm-hmm. And Elliot Helmer, who was our guest on our Bigfoot episode, um, is an archaeologist and does a lot of work with seashells and looked through their seashell ID guidebooks and found the snail. It was a shark eye moon snail, Ooh. which is a predatory 
migratory snail that, as I learned after looking it up, which, like you mentioned, preys on other snails by right. like drilling a hole through their shell and then slurping up the soft insides. Mm-hmm. So um, very interesting uh, find on the beach. <laughs> that was really cool to see. It's pretty interesting. What, one video I came across was a very large marine snail mm. chasing down a smaller snail. <laughs> What a low stakes chase scene. But it, it grabbed it and it was in the process of, you know, slurping it up. And there were hermit crabs just biting at the bit to get They're that snail. so ready for it. Get that shell. And one didn't wait. It it, <gasps> it went and got inside it as it was still like in the no. in the mouth of the larger snail. No. <laughs> it paid off. That is incredible. How rude. <laughs> no manners whatsoever. That shell like- was still warm. <laughs> I see that you are being actively eaten alive. If I could just scoot right by you real quick, if I could just um, get the Wi-Fi password on your way out, uh, literally did not even wait. Oh, you're gone. Okay, goodbye. Oh, you are dead. Okay, farewell. (laughs) Oh, man. We're going to have to do an episode on hermit crabs soon because hermit crabs are hilarious with Mm -hmm. their shells. Um, That's so funny. I'm glad you found that. Yep. (laughs) Excellent. What a funny little pair of animals we've had today yes thank you babe that was great thank you so much to everybody who has spent their time here learning about fascinating critters with us today uh if you liked what you heard um it would really mean a lot to us if you could leave us a good review on your podcatcher um we've had a couple of really very sweet reviews that um you you know i'd like to read our reviews and give folks thanks and and praises for for leaving sweet words for us first of which is uh the ghost apple who left five stars on apple podcasts and said, I'm an adult who listens, but I bet if you have children, this would be an absolute hit. Now, my wife will never know silence with the amount of animal facts I've learned. <laughs> um, I do enjoy arming people with animal facts. Uh, I enjoy sending you out into the world, into your relationships and parties and, mm-hmm. and work meetings for you to to share your quirky animal facts with. Also, uh, this one was is fresh, was just left. Um, and this is by, I originally read this username as Gobleth, and then I realized that it is meant to be Job Bluth, as in the character from Arrested Development. Uh, So I was like, Gobleth? What does that mean? Um, But Job Bluth 3009, who was very excited about our last week's episode with Tommy Siegel. Mm -hmm. So this person says that they too found Jukebox the Ghost at like 14 or so. Says they opened for the first Tally Hall concert I ever saw. I like Tally Hall. Tally Hall's really good. Mm. I see me and this person have similar tastes in music. Um, and was just very excited to see the Sandhill Crane episode. Um, so I was excited to see some enthusiasm for the the crossover event of this century. Oh, yeah. Just the Zoo of Us meets Jukebox the Ghost. Yeah. Anybody who's known me for an extended amount of time knows how hype I was for that. That was definitely like mm-hmm. highlight of my podcasting career, getting to team up with Jukebox the Ghost. Oh, yeah. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> Christian's been with me on many of those jukebox the ghost trips. I have. That kind of highlights some of our earliest dating. Yeah, that was like one of our first things we did as a couple was mm-hmm. go down to a to a, one of the jukebox the ghost concerts <laughs> we've been to. So yeah, they've definitely soundtracked our relationship, I think. For sure. In, in some ways. So um yeah, thank you to everybody. Thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on the network. Uh we love you and your other shows. And thank you to Louis Zong for our incredible theme music. It bop summer bop jam mm-hmm. heat. 
fire. <laughs> Love it very much. I think that's all for this week. Cool. Yeah. We will not talk to y'all next week. We'll see you the week after that. We'll miss you. Be good while we're gone. Behave. Drink lots of water. Stay hydrated. Moisturize. Moisturize. Absolutely. <laughs> Wear your sunscreen like I didn't, and I'm currently nursing a horrifying sunburn. <laughs> yeah, we'll see y'all soon. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported